That was such a nice introduction. The last time I had such an introduction is when I had to introduce myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just want to remind you this morning of how privileged you are to be part of this church. I really want to do that. For Cora and I, it's so exciting when we think we're going to anchor. Because when we think of anchor, and we've often discussed this, we think of strength, stability, and I think Adrian has shown uh, that he has that anchor. And, and I mean, how amazing is it? And I want to say a little bit more about that, but I just love the focus on Jesus. That's why this theme excites me so much. Now, I need to apologize uh, because I do not have any visuals. I don't have any scriptures, et cetera, et cetera, that I can give you on the screen. So uh, maybe it's good to go back to the old school kind of uh, hard copy Bible that some of you have here. Uh, our, lap our laptops, both Cora and I, our laptops were stolen. So uh, we've been, we've been <laughs> struggling to get things back again. Thankfully, we had backups. But um, when Adrian asked me and he, and he told me about the theme, you know, a sermon starts kind of incubating here in your heart. And because I didn't have anything to, to put the, my thoughts down on, on uh, paper or on uh, the laptop, and I didn't want to write it down because at this stage of my life, my handwriting needs the gift of interpretation. <laughs> and, and, and being... Uh, a teacher, it takes me quite a long time to put a sermon together because I want to know the whole background before I, I preach on something. So I started with Hebrews 1. I'm supposed to preach on Hebrews 7. I don't think I'll get there even this morning, maybe a little bit. So I'll leave it to Adrian to continue there. But um, I, I'd like to, and maybe this is not the right metaphor to use, but I'd like to distill the truth. <laughs> and, and make sure that we get the essence of of what God wants to say. And I think you've, you've really got it because the book of Hebrews is about Jesus and about considering Jesus. So if I don't get to the, our identity part, is it okay if we just focus on Jesus? It's not a bad person to focus on. Um, and, and let me again say, I love the focus in this church on, on Jesus uh, I, I had so many exciting visuals that I had in my mind that I wanted to give you. And one of the, uh, the visuals that I wanted to put up, there was, you know, the, the little guy with the round rimmed glasses and the red and white hat and scarf, Wally. I wanted to do a where's Wally? <laughs> because quite often I have to ask the question, I've, I've sat in churches, listened to sermons, and I really ask myself, where is Jesus? Because Jesus doesn't feature. We drove home one day after being in church, and I said to Cora, it was so amazing, Jesus just managed to sneak in in the last minute of that sermon. <laughs> kind of by, in the, by the back door. Because it was all about the preacher himself. And, and how spiritual I am, and how great I am. And no wonder people lose sight of Jesus today. 
because they don't know where Jesus is. Um, and, and, and that's so vital for us. And, and, and if we focus on who Jesus is, we will find our identity. So um, in a world where it's so easy to get distracted or to get involved in, in just the routine of life or even to be involved in religious activity, it's so easy to lose sight that it's all about Jesus. And so I, I want to bring Jesus clearly into focus and I want to lift him up so that we could, could look at him very clearly. Uh, here's what the book of Hebrews tells us. And I like this book because it's like gospel number five. The other four gospels tell us what Jesus did when he was on earth. Hebrews tells us his ministry currently, his present day ministry. And so um, it, it obviously gives us a summary of what the Gospels are about. And here's what it is about. Firstly, his death that brought us salvation and righteousness. Then secondly, his earthly life uh, that became our model for victorious and successful living. And then his present-day ministry affording us intercession and mediation before the throne of God. So that's what we, we're going to, to focus on. So here's what I want to do, and um, as I said, I'm, I'm still busy working on, this is a work in progress in my heart here. I want to, first of all, go and ask myself the question about the act of considering. What does consider mean? And so as a prelude to this teaching, uh, I want to give you some homework because I couldn't do all the homework myself. I want you to go uh, home and just study this passage in Acts chapter 1. We'll get to the book of Hebrews in a moment. Just three verses, Acts 1 verses 9 to 11. It's the passage about the ascension of Jesus. And what struck me there, if you read it at home, look for the emphasis uh, how Luke uses, uh, in fact, six different Greek words that have to do with vision or sight. And if you go and read it there, you'll see that it says that he was taken away while they watched. And incidentally, uh, even in English, there are six different words. And it says he was, uh, a cloud received him out of their sight. Then it says they looked steadfastly, a very important word, which means to gaze intently, to fasten your eyes on something. Then it says, and as he went up, behold, two uh, men stood by them in white apparel. And then they said to them, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him. Wow. And six different words describing vision or sight. And here's what I believe, because I believe every word of the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, I think, wants to uh, emphasize the importance of looking, of gazing, of beholding, of watching, of seeing Jesus. Uh, that should continue. And um, if we go to the book of Hebrews, I think that it is also interesting to go and study the different words because quite often you will find that the author brings us back to, to focus on Jesus. So I want to take you very quickly 
through four passages in, in the book of Hebrews where he reminds us that we should look at Jesus. And I want to mention the Greek words, and I'm not doing that to impress you. I'm, I'm not a Greek expert. I know a little Greek. He has a cafe on the corner there where we live. But quite often we can learn from the Greek words the importance of what God is trying to say to us. And then I want to arrive at conclusions. If we do look at Jesus, if we do consider him, what is our conclusion? What do we arrive at? Okay, so the first passage is in Hebrews chapter 2. And if you have your Bibles, just turn to verse 9. Let me give you the, what leads up to verse 9. Uh, the author tells us about Jesus, about God's plan for humankind, how he, God crowned us with, with glory and honor and how he, he placed all things under us. But then he says the reality is that sometimes we do not see everything yet subject to us as God's people. But then he gives us the answer in verse 9, Hebrews 2, 9. But... We see Jesus. That's the first emphasis of turn your eyes on Jesus. Look away from yourself. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And here is what we arrive at. Through Jesus, the Son of Man, all things are, in fact, subject to glorified humanity. Hallelujah. And we are more than conquerors in life through him. But the important thing is we need to see Jesus uh, in the light of God's revelation in his word. Don't make up your own idea of who Jesus is. Some people form their own concept of who, who Jesus is. And here's what, what Paul, in fact, says. He says, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, we don't know Christ according to the flesh any longer. Don't, when you think of Jesus, don't see him as the baby in the manger. Thank God for Christmas, but people have the wrong focus during Christmas. He's not the baby in the manger. He's not just Mary's boy or the carpenter's son. He's not that uh, 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 Jew dressed in a robe and, and sandals any longer. In fact, he's not even the Jesus on the cross. He's the risen, resurrected, ascended, glorified King of kings and Lord of lords. That's how we need to, to look at him. He's the glorified Christ. And that's what the book of Hebrews is telling us. That is King and that is Lord and that's how you need to look at him. Then if we go to the next chapter in Hebrews Three, he continues with the same theme of, of looking unto Jesus, and that's the scripture, Adrian, that you quoted then in verse 1. He says that we need to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now, here's where I want to bring, bring the Greek word in. It's a very interesting word. It's not a common word in, in the New Testament. It's, it's only used a handful of times, but it actually is the word katanoeo, which means to observe intensely, to endeavor to understand fully. And every time I find that it is, it's, it's trying to tell us this, don't look at Jesus with just a passing glance. He's worthy 
of intensive gazing upon Him. Because the more you look at who Jesus is, the more you will understand Him. The more you will understand Him, the more you'll understand your own identity. Wow. So, uh, um, here's what he's saying. He is, is the, the grand apostle, the one sent from God, but he's also the high priest, the one who brings us to God. Then, in, in uh, the well-known chapter 11 of Hebrews, uh, the chapter about the heroes of faith, we read about Moses, one of the characters mentioned there. And here's what it says in verse 27. By faith he, that's Moses, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Wow. That's what we need to do. By faith we need to see him who is invisible. And again here, the Greek word is an interesting word, Horao, which means to stare at, to discern clearly. If you look at Jesus with the eye of faith, you will be able to discern him who is invisible to the natural eye. If you focus on him fully, you will be able to forsake Egypt and everything that this world uh, offers you. You will be able to endure the backlash of a hostile world because your eyes are not focused on your circumstances. And you will know that he's with you, whether you cannot see him. See him who is invisible. I told you the story before about the, the little girl in Sunday school who, when, when the teacher was teaching about the fact that God is always with us, whether we can see him or not, and she asked for whether anybody experienced something like that before. And then this little girl said, yes, when we go to the shopping mall, they have those huge glass doors. And when we come close to the doors, God opens them for us. We cannot see him, but he opens them. And I love that story because there's a simplicity of faith there that God is a door opener. <laughs> and he's there even when you do mundane things like shopping. Amen. We need to see the invisible and eternal God. And then lastly, in Hebrews 12, and incidentally, again, uh, um, four different, no, five different Greek words that are used in, in the book of Hebrews. Let's look at Hebrews 12 and the first three verses. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus. Wow. That's the key to become a champion. If you look at yourself, you'll be disappointed. If you look at others that are doing better than you, you might be um, discouraged. If you look at Jesus, you'll be distinguished. Because he's the one standing at the winning post, and he's the champion of all champions, and he's saying, I'm your coach, and you can make it. Amen. And that's why he uses this metaphor of the race, and he says, looking unto Jesus. And the Greek word that is used there, 
only appears once in the New Testament, and again, it, it refers to a persistent gaze to stare, to concentrate, to turn your attention away from all else, to only see one thing. Wow. Looking unto Jesus. Then he says, the author and the finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Then he says in verse 3, for consider him. There it is again. And incidentally, a different Greek word that is used here. The first Greek word has the prefix kata. Kata in Greek literally means down. When it's used in a figurative way, it means intensely. Here, there's another prefix, anna, which actually means repeatedly, consistently, doing it over and over again. So the Greek word here is anna logetsumai, which actually means to estimate intensely, to con contemplate repetitively, to consider keenly. Wow. And that is the act of considering Jesus. That's what he wants us to do. And he wants us to, to look at Jesus to see he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's at the starting line and he's at the finish line. He started the work and he will complete it. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And those are the conclusions that we arrive at when we look intensely at Jesus. Now, in, in, in the second part, I, no, 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 I can call this the second part even, but just moving on, I want to now go to Hebrews 7, actually. And um, here we are introduced to a Bible character, and I want to speak about considering Jesus comparing him to this man for uh, ease, I'm just going to refer to him as Melky. Because his name is not easy to, to pronounce. Now, here's the interesting thing. Melky, or his full name, Melchizedek, is only mentioned in two verses in the Old Testament and only in Hebrews in the New Testament. So, Maybe we should call him Mysterious Melky. We don't know much about him. And even in the two short passages in the Old Testament, go and read Genesis 18, by the way, where Moses writes about him and his encounter with Abraham. And then in Psalm 110, David mentions him, and specifically his, his, uh, his priesthood, the order of, of Melchizedek. So we, we have these, these cryptic clues about this Bible character who would have remained obscure did the Holy Spirit not inspire the author of Hebrews to connect him with Christ. And Melchi, who was kind of obscure in the Old Testament, starts shining in the book of Hebrews. No wonder they named the Melchi way after him. <laughs> but he really becomes a star in the book of Hebrews because here it tells us exactly who he was and why God, and this is what I love about God, God can use obscure people. You don't have to be famous. 
You don't have to be as well-known as Abraham. You don't have to be a King David. You can be mysterious Melky, and God can make you a shining star. Hallelujah. So here's what we read about him in Hebrews 7. And again, uh, please go and, and, and do this as, as homework because here is the, is the mediator part that we can recognize. And um, I'll just give you a, uh, a brief summary of Hebrews 7 verses 1 to 10. And then I want to show you why Melchizedek was so important. Uh, he had an encounter with Abraham. Abraham just came back from the battle. And Abraham actually gave a tenth of the spoils of the battle to Melchizedek. Keep this in mind. There was no law about tithing yet. In fact, Melchizedek is the first man in the Bible to be called a priest. There was no priesthood of Moses, there was no law of Moses, there was no tithing according to the law, and here out of his heart Abram just does this and, and you must realize by doing that, Abram was recognizing the superiority of Melchizedek and Melchizedek blesses him, and that again is another proof of the superiority of Melchizedek because you cannot, it's normally the blesser that blesses the lesser. You have to have something to bless somebody with. And so here it, it proves the, the, the superiority of, of Melchizedek. So um, here's, here's what I want to say. He's the very first person to be called a priest of God. And you will see his connection with Christ a little bit later. Uh, and, and he speaks of, of Jesus. His priesthood was not the Levitical priesthood of the law of Moses. It's something totally different. Incidentally, he's also one of the first people to be called a king in the Bible. One of the first uh, uh, kings mentioned in, in, in the Bible. And, and, and then, as I said, Moses gave uh, a tithe to him. And can I throw this in at no extra cost? I, it actually irks me a little bit because it's become part of our church vocabulary. Never, ever say that I pay a tithe to God. You cannot pay God back for anything. It's the wrong translation Nowhere in the Old Testament, if you look at the, at least the King James, New King James, etc., etc., it never says people pay the tithe. It's a wrong translation in English. Even in, in, the, in the New Testament, the Greek word there is literally, and the English word is a great word because they take the word tithe, which means a tenth, and they make a verb of it, I tithe. That's what the Greek word says. The translators often in, uh, inserted the word, I pay, they paid tithe. You cannot, in fact, I have news for you. When you give finances, you don't give to God. You give back to God. That's, that's the correct way to look at it. Because whatever you have, you receive from God in any case. So, okay, let me come back to what I wanted to say. Maybe somebody needed that. Don't ever think you're fulfilling an obligation when you're tithing. It must come from your heart. 
If you pay it just as your church membership, <laughs> you're missing the whole point. You must give from a generous heart, as Will told us this morning. Okay, it's a matter of the heart. Now, why did God choose mysterious Melky? Because there's a beautiful connection. God wanted to paint a picture of Jesus. And here are the similarities between Melchizedek and Jesus. And just incidentally, Hebrews 7 verse 3 says, he was made like the Son of God. Some people say it was Jesus that appeared in the Old Testament as a, as a Christophany. It's not that it's just that he became a type of, of Jesus. And, and, and here is where we find the similarities between Melchizedek and Jesus. The first similarity is this. There's no beginning and there's no end. When the author of Hebrews tells us about uh, Melchizedek, he says these words in Hebrews 7.3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Does that mean that Melchizedek didn't have a father and a mother? No, not at all. All of us have fathers and mothers. But his genealogy is not mentioned. And usually in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, you could read so-and-so begat so-and-so and begat so-and-so. The whole genealogy is there. But we don't find Melchizedek's. Why? Because God wanted to paint this picture that there's no beginning and there's no end. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went to. Why? Because God wanted to paint this picture of Jesus who has no beginning and no end. And why is that important? Because the priesthood of Melchizedek that we read about in Hebrews 7 is an eternal priesthood. It never stops. I'm so glad we're part of a church where we do not have priests that we have to go to to get our sins forgiven and to give us a credit on our sin account if we pay certain indulgences. Because what if I had my favorite priest who always forgives me and he passes away or moves to another <laughs> church? And I lose the credit on my sin account. The, yes, the good news Jesus remains high priest forever and ever. Hallelujah. And that's what, what he wants to bring across. So the second thing that we, we see, and, and, and just incidentally, every priest in the Old Testament had a predecessor and a successor. Jesus doesn't. He's the first and the last, remember? Okay. So uh, uh, eternal priesthood not received or passed on through inheritance. Then um, the, the second similarity between Melchizedek and Jesus is that they were both kings and priests. This is something very unusual because people would often be a king or they would be a priest. But this is very unusual, kings and priests, because it says this, um, uh, uh, that, that Melchizedek was, and he had two names. 
He was Melchizedek from Melek, the Greek word for king, and Zedek, the Greek word for righteousness. So his name literally meant king of righteousness. And then he's also called the king of Salem. You can hear that Salem and Shalom are from the same root, the king of peace. So Melchizedek was a picture of Jesus. He's the king of righteousness. I love that because it means righteousness belongs to him. He's the owner. He's the king. He's the ruler of righteousness. You do not become righteous on your own. You receive your righteousness from Jesus. You cannot have peace without Jesus. He's the prince of peace and the ruler of righteousness. So that is the picture, again, that God wanted to, to paint for us, that, that Jesus and, uh, uh, was the fulfillment of uh, the type that, that Melchizedek stood for. And then, an, uh, next similarity, they were both from a special priestly order. And here's where David, this is so interesting, because we only find the reference to Melchizedek in Genesis 18. Then in Psalm 110 verse 4, here's what David says in that psalm. The Lord has sworn. Let me stop there for a moment. Go read Hebrews and you'll find that Jesus was different in his priesthood because he didn't receive the priesthood by inheritance, but he was appointed by an oath. God is the only person that does not need to swear. Because whatever God says is always true. When we swear in court, <laughs> it's to force us to, to speak the truth. And you know, if, if I think of Jesus in the New Testament, uh, we find in older translations the word, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say to you, Beautiful thing is the Greek word there is amen. Amen, amen. I the amen say to you. A threefold emphasis that this is truth. Jesus didn't have to say that. God didn't have to swear because he never speaks a lie. He always speaks the truth. When we say things like, you know, I hear especially young people when they tell your story, they'll say genuine. <laughs> and genuine means you can believe me this time. <laughs> Serious. God doesn't have to swear. So that's why the book of Hebrews, go read it. It says that we have two things that cannot change that we can trust. The fact that God promised it and that he confirmed his promise with an oath. That's why Jesus will remain high priest according to the order of Melchizedek forever. So here's the, here's the interesting thing. And I wish we had time to spend on this. If you wanted to become a priest in Israel, you had no chance unless you were from the tribe of Levi. Because all the priests came out of the tribe of Levi. So you had to have the right genealogy. You received your priesthood by inheritance. Jesus was not from the tribe of, Ju of Levi, but the tribe of Judah. He's called the lion from the tribe of Judah. So Jesus could not be a priesthood according to the Levitical priesthood because his genealogy was not right. You had to have the right genes. So in the Old Testament, Levi's genes 
made you a man of the cloth. <laughs> Couldn't resist that one. But Jesus is extraordinary because he's from a different order. Because just the one thing about the Levitical priesthood was that it was not lasting. It had to be passed on. But the Melchizedek priesthood is forever. Hallelujah. Doesn't change. And that's who Jesus is. The unchangeable best high priest ever. Hallelujah. And so uh, it, it is important to see all, all of these things. And as I said, they both represented peace and righteousness. They both received honor, uh, how Abram honored Melchizedek by giving him a tenth of the battle spoils. And today we worship. Please let me also add this. When you tithe or when you give, please see it as an act of worship. Because you're actually worshiping Jesus through that. That's the message that we want to get here. And then uh, here's something very interesting. Both of them shared in a covenant meal. Melchizedek brought bread and wine. Does that sound familiar? And what accompanied that meal was the blessing that Melchizedek gave to Abraham. And so when we ever partake of communion, you need to realize this, that it is something that Jesus brought to the table. He gave his life. His body was broken. That's what the bread typifies. His blood was shed. That's what the wine or the grape juice speaks of. And what we need to realize when we celebrate communion is that there is blessing involved. Hallelujah. It's not that the, the, the bread literally becomes the body of Jesus. It's not that the wine literally becomes his blood, but we can apply the benefits, the covenant benefits that, that Jesus brought for us. Now, uh, my, my time is totally up because I still wanted to do something else. And here's something that you can go and do. In fact, you will need to read from Hebrews 5 to Hebrews 10 because in those chapters, we find a contrast between Aaron, the first high priest, and Jesus, the final high priest. And if you go and read it, it's very interesting to see that Jesus is better than Aaron in so many respects. In other words, Jesus is better, and his covenant is better. His sacrifice is better. Adrian, you mentioned all of those things. I think it's so important to, to recognize that. Let me quickly, and I'll, I'll just give you the headlines, uh, and, and you can go and read it uh, in your own time. Firstly, we said that the order was different. Aaron was from the Levitical order. Jesus was from the order of Melchizedek. Secondly, Aaron was a priest taken from men, but Jesus came from God, and he became a man. Thirdly, Aaron had an earthly father and therefore was mortal, but Jesus came from the heavenly father, and he is immortal. So it's a priesthood that continued. Aaron's priesthood was temporal, but the priesthood of Jesus is eternal. How amazing is it that the priesthood of Jesus continued beyond his death? In fact, death was kind of the launching pad of his priesthood. 
And, and here's, here's the difference if you think of the fact that our Bible is, is divided into two testaments, Old and New Testament. Here's the difference between an earthly testament, if somebody has a will in a testament, and a heavenly testament. When it, it, we think of an earthly testament, it's the end of a relationship. Then I receive my inheritance. With a testament of Jesus, it's the beginning of a relationship. Hallelujah. I received my blessings at the beginning. Don't wait for heaven to be blessed. I know heaven's going to be a far greater place than earth. But don't use the glories of heaven as an excuse to fail on earth. Don't say, I'm just an orphan. You know, uh, I've got to walk that lonesome road. You remember that song. Uh, okay, I, I, I need to finish here. So, um, as I said, Aaron became priest without an oath. Jesus became a priest with a divine oath. Aaron had to offer for his own sins. Jesus was without sin. Aaron's priest was according to the law, but Jesus, uh, his priesthood is according to grace and the new covenant. Aaron's priesthood was inadequate. Jesus' priesthood is perfect. Aaron needed to sacrifice continually. Jesus brought a sacrifice. And here's a phrase that you'll find in the book of Hebrews. Go and look out for it. Once for all. Once for all. Only one time. And it was for all time and everybody. Um, Aaron's priesthood was national. But the priesthood of Jesus is universal. Aaron's served in the earthly tabernacle, but Jesus serves in the heavenly tabernacle. Oh, I wish we had more time for this, but you have some more weeks going on for the same series. It excites me when we can focus on Jesus. If you look at Jesus and you gaze intently with purpose and you, you make sure that everything else becomes dim, you will see that you'll find your identity in Jesus. So I want to encourage you, as that old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. Let's stand.